So when you've only got one weapon, you are throwing all of the Wheat Mage army against that one weapon. And eventually that one weapon is going to give. So now I want you to think of somebody storming a castle. You've got a moat around the castle. You've got archers up on the ramparts firing down at this Wheat Midge army that's trying to storm the castle. Um, on top of the ramparts, you've got spikes so people can't climb up on it. So now you've got multiple, multiple ways to defend this castle. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boygen. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. So in this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Tyler Wist, who's a field crop entomology research scientist at the Saskatoon Research and Development Center. We are talking all things wheat midge, what the biology of wheat midge is, what its distribution is in North America, globally, what kind of impact that it's having on producers, its biology, how it how it produces and grows in the soil, how it impacts the crop. Um, and then we get into some opportunities we're looking at for uh, taking away some of the weight that's required of the SM1 gene to mitigate impacts of wheat midge on wheat. Right now, the SM1 gene is carrying the majority of the load when it comes to uh, wheat midge tolerance in spring wheat. Uh, so Tyler is looking at a variety of different options to see if there's other tools we can put in that toolbox to mitigate the impacts of wheat midge on spring wheat. So we get into some of those. He talks about some of the successes and challenges of some of these options and what it looks like in the future uh, and what value it can bring to producers. So, uh, I hope that you find value in this podcast and this information. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us or get back to us. Uh, but other than that, thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. All right, so we are sitting here with Dr. Tyler Wist. He is a field crop entomologist, uh, research scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada at the Saskatoon Research and Development Centre. Tyler, I'm I'm curious. Um, you know, I always find entomologists very interesting, and I'm always curious about how you got to that point. Like, what what led you in the direction of insects? What what got you there? Well, I go back to my childhood when my mother was explaining to me how a a lady beetle was a very beneficial insect, and she was telling me how it it ate the bad insects, it ate the uh, aphids, and uh, then I lifted up my little foot and I crushed the ladybug. So apparently at that point, the uh, idea of field heroes and beneficial insects washed right off of me. And um, I was really into the mode of pest control. So then I'll fast forward a little bit. We'll go to uh, second year university. Tyler is studying biology at the University of Saskatchewan. And he's also working at a tree farm, seeing insect issues. Tree farm doesn't pay very well. So he applies for a job with the city of Saskatoon that probably pays triple. And he goes in for the 
interview with the city of Saskatoon, and they say, oh, you're studying biology at the U of S. Yes, I am. Well, have we got a job for you? We're going to put you into pest management at the city of Saskatoon. And I said, that's super cool. I didn't know there was even a pest management department. So into pest management, I go and I start learning about mosquitoes, mosquito control, mosquito identification, mosquito populations, and also things that attack our urban forests. And so then that leads me down an eventual path towards a PhD, where I actually studied some of these things that were afflicting the urban forests. So good enough it's i mean first off <laughs> mrs wist way ahead of her time <laughs> I mean, yeah. she was she's, she knew it was coming um you knew all about beneficial insects too yeah which i guess looking back kind of surprised me yeah and it, it sounds like you 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 almost couldn't go any direction but insects so i guess leading from that what kind of research are you doing right now what are you what are you focused on um in your current role so let's say that i started here as uh the guy working on wheat and the main pest of wheat in Western Canada that I've been looking at is the wheat midge. Um, we've got a kind of a resurgence of wheat stem sawfly, but a lot of that research has been done at the Lethbridge Research Centre by our Alberta entomologists in agriculture and agri-food Canada. But it's possible that I might start looking at that a bit more. And then as well, I was working in... Uh, Okay, I was working on cereal aphids, so definitely something that afflicts wheat. And we're looking at the beneficial insects that were eating the aphids in the wheat to see whether or not those could control the aphid population. So another insect, aster leafhoppers, also afflicts wheat, and people might not actually know that. So I kept uh, those insects in my portfolio as well, in addition to looking at wheat midge. And so... In terms of wheat midge, we've been looking at things like understanding resistance, finding new resistance to wheat midge in the plants themselves, and also looking at distributions and populations of wheat midge across Western Canada. So we've been running a pheromone monitoring network in conjunction with CCAN that we call hashtag midgebusters. And so that's been giving us some insights into our forecasting maps and then the conditions that need to happen for us to have these wheat midge outbreaks. What have we learned about the distribution and, and population distribution of wheat midge? That's interesting. I always say that, hey, we learned that Manitoba has wheat midge. <laughs> and I just smile about that because uh, we know that Manitoba has wheat midge. The original wheat midge work was done under the AASC Winnipeg lab, and that's where the SM1 gene was discovered. And of course, the SM1 gene is the gene that gives wheat it's tolerance to wheat midge and i say tolerance not resistance because there are some of the population wow if they're a subpopulation but they can survive on sm1 and the wheat itself when it gets fed upon by the wheat midge it has to be fed upon before the sm1 gene starts to work and so some of those seeds can still be a little bit damaged by wheat midge so we call it tolerance and not complete resistance just maybe just a little bit of clarity on that is there definitions of what would make something is there categorical measurable differences between resistance and tolerance in that okay we get 70 percent reduction for it to be tolerance and a 90 percent reduction for it to be resistance is that 
are we playing on that kind of scale or how did, how does that definition come along? Uh, that's really interesting, Jeremy. And it's something that I've been thinking about. Can we classify different lines of wheat into these classes? So um, we look at a wheat like Shaw that nobody really grows anymore, but Shaw was really highly resistant to wheat midge. So it carried the SM1 gene, but I think it may have had a few other resistance traits as well. And so when you look at Shaw, you're getting almost no midge damaged kernels, which is the way that we score these things, percentage of midge damaged kernels. And then you look at Unity, which was the first ready for market variety that carried SM1, and it's still being used as a check in the co-ops. And every year when I go in there and I'm classifying the uh, the new lines as, are they coming up as resistant? So is SM1 being properly expressed in all of the heads that we're looking at. I look at Unity and I go, oh my goodness. It's like 60% of the heads come back as resistant and then 40% of the heads come back as susceptible. Like what is going on there? Is this a with within the same plant or between plants? Uh, so we're talking the samples that we get from a site. So it wouldn't be you know, this plant, this is 10 heads. Well, we get we get 10 heads that we dissect and classify each as resistant or susceptible. So that's the, that's the, there's two different ways that we do these dissections. And that is the fast and less informative way to do it. So we're classifying these heads. And so you're ripping them apart. And if you find midge damage kernels or, and, or you find a wheat midge, or a wheat midge larval skin. So they cast their skins off when they drop to the ground as a third instar, and they'll leave those behind. So if you find those, you can say, well, that thing made it all the way through to its third instar on this head, which means that SM1 was not working. Or maybe you've got one of those subpopulations. There was about 2% of them, we call them virulent midge that can survive on SM1. But mostly it means that, and I talked with, Kurt McCartney about this. He called Unity leaky SM1. So that's like sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And then if we are able to classify these things, then we might be able to put the sort of numbers on them like we do for disease, um, the disease packages. So moderately resistant, resistant, tolerant could be one that's worked in there. But that is a whole lot of data crunching that I haven't done yet. And I don't think anybody else has really done. But um, our goal is to keep building these things that we could call resistant. So so, so tolerance is a little bit of a gray a gray area right now. There's 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 some reduction, but it's not like it's it's a it's a defined clear amount of reduction that yeah, there's no defined clear amount. We call it not wheat, it's called midge tolerant wheat because you also have to mix in, um, you have to mix in the refuge. So when you're selling midge tolerant wheat, you have to mix in a 10% refuge so that we can prevent the overtaking of the population by these virulent midge. So then your whole field then is sort of tolerant. It's not fully resistant because you've got these 10% heads mixed in there that can be taken out by wheat midge. So maybe that's part of it too. So I, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, which I, 
it's I, I like chatting about this stuff and and you mentioned oh that's pretty common for me <laughs> getting into some uh some other characteristics that may help with resistance or tolerance um but maybe let's I want to take a step back and uh, you know we mentioned that yes we have midge in in Manitoba like what kind of distribution are we actually talking about here in in Western Canada and in North America you know are are we is this is this pretty widespread? Would a producer in Western Canada um, essentially be at risk any year of this? And then, kind of tapping onto that, is this something that is North American, Western Canadian specific, or is this are we seeing this in other parts of the world? And then, kind of jumping off from there, what? kind of impacts are we actually seeing in Western Canada from this, from a large scale and then down to a producer scale? Okay. A lot of questions in there. Let's see if I can start from the beginning for you. All right. So wheat midge distribution, big outbreaks uh, started probably in the eighties. So looking at when this was introduced, um, we seem to have multiple introductions of wheat midge into Canada, at least. And we know this, Martin Erlinson and Boyd Morey was helping out on this. They did a genetic study and they found two different haplotypes of wheat midge. So that suggests that with two different haplotypes, we had two different introductions of wheat midge into North America. So um, what we see in the field is that we've got wheat midge distributed all the way through Western Canada, the whole growing region. Maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago, we would have said that the Peace River region didn't have wheat midge. But they had a big outbreak of wheat midge within the last 10 years, which prompted Jennifer Otani to get a couple of grad students working on it up there. What's really interesting in the Peace River region is this insect is crepuscular, we call it, which means it comes out at dawn and dusk, and that's when it lays its eggs. And if you're up in the Peace River region in July, dawn and dusk basically bleed together. And so what they were looking at there was, does this increase the flight period of the wheat midge? And so really interesting work that came out of that, including work on the parasitic wasp. And uh, so if we're looking back at the 90s, we could actually watch um, in terms of the spread of the wheat midge. Uh, Martin and Owen Olford had some slides that that showed the wheat midge advancing across the prairies. And so it was this sort of red front moving down. And yeah, eventually it was all the way across Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and into Alberta. And so I think there's no region, at least in Western Canada, that is safe from the wheat midge at this point in time. But interestingly, the parasitic wasp, uh, Macroglans penetrans, also introduced itself into Western Canada during one of these invasions by the wheat midge and it followed the wheat midge and so the series of slides actually showed the parasitoid chasing the wheat midge across Saskatchewan as it was going so very interesting watching that now in terms of North American distribution wheat midge is down into the big wheat growing areas in the U.S. and the haplotypes that Martin Erlinson had found um, were European haplotypes so we could say that our wheat midge in Canada came from Europe, just like a lot of our farmers did. So um, China also has an issue with wheat midge, and they have a lot of uh, work going on there. And so 
Europe and China are both looking at the wheat midge problem. So it's not a North America only problem, but it is, yeah, a worldwide issue. Your your comment on the piece and the larger dusk and dawn and those melding together, I imagine that means there's there's it's not that they just they meld together, but there's actually a longer period of dusk and dawn occurring. And it made me think of gosh, a research project or not a research project, a, a, a little trial we did in our crop physiology class in university of looking at red to far red light ratios on plants and how that affected elongation. And it made me ask the question, okay, but we, they come out at dusk and dawn because assumably that's when things are calmer, it's moist, that's when there's the best flying conditions. But I guess I'll ask the question, is there any potential alignment with that red to far red light ratio that changes at dusk to dawn that could also trigger that um, just out of curiosity because it, it poked my my memory a little bit there. Well, that's a good question. Now we're getting into what does the wheat midge see? And so when I'm studying them in my field, it's like 8.30, the sun seems to be at that exact same point when the wheat midge comes out. So we don't see the females. And then 8.30, the sun's dipped low enough. And so like maybe we're talking about polarized light as well. So the polarized light could hit a certain point. Has anybody studied that? Good question, and I'm not sure. So distribution is is wide in North America. Um, we know it's globally. What kind of impact are, are producers actually seeing from this pest? And, and I want to come at this from a uh, use of, of a wheat midge tolerant variety. And if we didn't have a wheat midge tolerant genetic variety that we could use like what kind of impact comparison um, are we seeing and what might we see if we didn't have this technology all right so a lot of questions in there again let's see what i can cover let's talk about the biology of the wheat midge a bit in that context so there are regions of western canada where they don't worry about wheat midge as much and those regions are typically drier than other regions Wheat midge need the rains in the spring to complete their development in the ground. If they don't get those rains, if it's too dry, they stay in the ground. And so um, our outbreaks and things that we've seen in the past have been when we've got these wet springs. So it's on an opposite environmental shift as the wheat stem sawfly, which likes it hot and dry. And so the areas that typically have a lot of wheat stem sawfly typically don't have a lot of wheat midge. In terms of outbreak ability and damage capacity, in the outbreaks in the 90s, before the SM1 gene was discovered and used in uh, wheat breeding, they had yield losses of up to 90%. And so these were, these were documented in Owen Olfert's work um, Egg Canada actually threw six or seven scientists at the wheat midge problem back in the 1990s to try to figure out everything from parasitism to yield loss to economic thresholds to working on trying to find some plant resistance. So a lot of uh, a lot of big brains working on that back in the 90s because it was such a big problem. Now, if we had to go back to not using the SM1 gene. Um, then our wheat growing regions become highly susceptible to the wheat midge again. Right now we've got one chemical that is registered 
and one that was just deregistered. And the one that was deregistered had better efficacy against eggs and larvae. So the one that we've got now really needs to be timed well with adult flight timing, adult emergence. And so in terms of the chemicals that we have ready to go against wheat midge, not a good place right now. And so if that SM1 gene ever fails and we get the perfect storm of wheat midge, that's, uh, that's trouble brewing. Did I answer your questions? I think you had three in there. <laughs> I, th I think so. Um, it, but as always, I, I mean, I, I have a couple of follow-ups. And, and, you know, you mentioned the rainfall required in the spring for eggs to uh, develop, pupae um, to develop. <clears throat> um, if so, so everything I've heard is that 25 millimeters, give or take, of rain in May. Is that is that still what we expect to see those populations come through? And I ask this question because I know I've seen some of the distribution maps and the uh, maps from the project that you're doing with CCAN, the, the midge busters, and they don't always seem to align. So I'm curious if we maybe that isn't telling the whole story. Is that telling the whole story? Um, and then my kind of follow-up question to that is we've lost the, um, the chemical that helps control both um, adult and, and the eggs. Um, and we only have the one now that can control the adults and the timing. Um, how does that rainfall impact the actual timing? Is that something that producers can actually track to capture exactly when that adult flight will occur to make sure that they're getting the most impact from that chemical if they're using it, but hopefully they'd be using a SM1 gene variety and not having to use a chemical, but. Okay, let's start with that first question then. And I'm gonna back up. So you had said the eggs get going. The eggs are actually up on the heads. And when I said pupae, we get to that pupil form for the adult to come out. So life cycle there that ties in with the rain is you've got a third instar larva in the ground that has formed itself this highly resistant overwintering cocoon. And it's the rains that get those, those uh, third instar larvae to shed their cocoons, crawl up to the surface and then pupate. And so the rains plus the soil temperature are what drive the wheat midge populations in the springtime. The rains are also driving your wheat coming up and out of the ground as well. So when we were doing midge busters, um, 2021, it looked like it was going to be the perfect storm. And CCAN had me on a webcast or a Zoom call, something like this. And we were showing the forecast map. And so the forecast maps are done in Alberta and Saskatchewan. And that's why I was joking about Manitoba not having wheat midge, because they don't run a forecast map. Um, and so Alberta, Saskatchewan get the forecast map out in January. And in January, everybody went, oh, my goodness, we've got big red zones for wheat midge forecasting for 2021. So that means that in 2020, we must have had a buildup of wheat midge that are now in the ground and now getting counted in this wheat midge survey. So the wheat midge survey is great for farmers to try to plan what varieties they want. So if they're sitting in a red zone, they could say, maybe it's time that I used an SM1 wheat and didn't plant Brandon this year. So the SM1 wheats are kind of 
are all out yielding Brandon because Brandon's one of our checks typically in the co-ops. And so there's no real reason to not use a midge tolerant wheat. And if you're looking at yield drags now, when we were doing this 2021 mapping, I kind of said, well, if we match up these 2021 red zones, do they match up with what actually occurred in 2021? And by what actually occurred, that means the secan growers, if they wanted, were able to put out a pheromone trap in their field. And so we took cumulative male wheat midge numbers off the pheromone trap and then overlaid those onto that forecasting map and using that same stoplight color. And so in the northeast part of Saskatchewan, like around the Melfort, Tisdale, Carrot River area, that was one of the big red zones going into 2021. So the forecast for Saskatchewan said, this is probably going to be a problem area. And then we looked at the spring rains because when I overlaid the map and I said, well, we've got green coming from our pheromone mapping, which means we didn't really have any wheat midge putting over a red area that was forecast, um, what's going on here? And so Bob Elliott had published a paper. So I, I kind of replaced Bob Elliott here at the Saskatoon Research Center. He published the paper saying that you need 25 millimeters cumulative rainfall to get those overwintering larvae to come out of the ground throughout May. So if you've got 25 millimeters through May, boom, they're coming out of the ground. So I looked at what rained in Melfort and they had 32 millimeters. So by that conventional knowledge, we should have had wheat midge and we didn't have wheat midge. So I looked at when the rain fell and it was just two millimeters here, a millimeter and a half there. So what we were lacking was this big soaking rainfall. So if you're a little wheat midge in the ground and the ground, the top layer is getting wet, but the bottom layer is not getting wet, you don't actually know it's raining because the water hasn't gotten down to you to kickstart your development, which is what I think happened in that northeast area in Saskatchewan, where the forecast didn't match what actually happened. Then down in Regina area, Regina got 64 millimeters. That's enough for sure to get the wheat midge out of the ground. And it came in a big four-day rainstorm. So they got 64 millimeters in four days, which, if you can imagine, soaked the ground and got the wheat midge up and out of the ground. And so the traps down in the, the southeast part of Saskatchewan were red. And so when we overlaid that, it was like, here's what was forecasted. When we got the rains, it came to pass with the pheromone traps. So that midge busters has been really interesting in sort of reevaluating how us as scientists think about the amount of rainfall needed. So it's not just the amount now, but it's the amount plus how much comes at once, if we want to sum it up that way. No, it's, I mean, that's very um, important information for, for producers and agronomists that are taking a look at those red zones, not just how much is coming down, but <clears throat> how is it coming down? Is it so? Definitely. Is it so? Can I deal with question number two that you had there? Yeah, absolutely. So we're talking now about, well, how can producers know when that flight period is happening? So Ag Canada actually does a forecast and we put that out with Prairie Pass Monitoring. If you're signed up, you'll get an email that says, Wheat midge emergence, according to the forecasted model, 
should have started in these parts of the prairies. And so the model that is used takes into account the moisture, so how much rainfall has happened, and it's kind of a proxy for soil moisture, and then the soil temperature. And so this was another map that I wanted to use the pheromone monitoring network to ground truth, basically. So is it actually happening? So this year, when our midge busters traps, this year being 2022, talking about that season, I sent an email to uh, Ross Weiss, who was doing our, our modeling, and I said, hey, Ross, we've got the first reports of wheat midge on our midge busters trap on this date. And he said, oh, that is perfect, because our AAFC model predicted that wheat midge emergence is starting at that exact same time. So that was really cool. So he's like, wheat midge should have emerged at about 1% according to the model. And I said, yeah, we've got a few wheat midge reporting from a few traps. So that ground truthing is coming together. So are the AAFC prediction models working? That's the question that we're answering. And it looks like it's it's working well. So um, with those models, then the, the farmers, the agronomists can know when the wheat midge are coming out and they only live for five days. So you've got a small window there to get in there and do control. But we always say, get in your fields and scout it. So if a model says you've got wheat midge emerging in your area, go and check it out. And by checking it out, I mean, you were there at 8.30 when the females come out and you're now counting those. And I'm going to qualify that with, I've been doing that the last couple of years. Big numbers of males on the wheat midge trap. I've got videos of males swarming around the trap thinking that they're flying to a female. And then I go looking for females and I don't find them. So in that case, I could have gotten on a sprayer and sprayed the whole field and just sprayed males because I didn't see a female anywhere. So this is where boots on the ground really come into play. Do your scouting. And I'm trying to figure out where the heck were those females? Why did we have males that were emerging and the females weren't doing what the females do, like lay eggs on the heads? So um, when you start looking at things on a really fine scale like that, sometimes you get more questions than you get answers. You'd think for a species that only lives flying for five days, the synchronicity between the males and females would probably have to be pretty accurate to ensure that you're getting... Exactly right. So I'm still trying to understand, did I miss them? What was what was going on? Like, I was literally in my field every single night. And so maybe we missed one of the environmental, or maybe I missed an evening with one of the environmental conditions where the females were flying. So maybe it wasn't humid enough. Maybe it was slightly too windy. And they just said, yeah, I'm not flying today. I'm going to stay down in the canopy. So... Yeah, more questions. So, so we've gone through distribution impacts, the importance of SM1, spraying timing and the biology of wheat midge. Um, and, and, you know, tying back to that importance of SM1, I mean, it really being at this point, only the, one of the only dependable tools other than spraying to help mitigate um, the impacts of SM1. Um, and, Obviously, that's a lot of pressure to put on one tool. Um, so finding alternatives 
to that tool or supportive uh, tools that that can kind of you know like weed management start to create layers of control. Um, you have funding to look into this, to dig into different opportunities. Um, so, could you share a little bit about what that project looks like? What opportunities um, we could have for different types of resistance or tolerance, uh, and we can maybe dig in a little bit from there. Great. So you're asking me what else is out there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna use a I'll use a battle analogy. So when you've only got one weapon, you are throwing all of the wheat mage army against that one weapon, and eventually that one weapon is gonna give. So now I want you to think of somebody storming a castle. You've got a moat around the castle. You've got archers up on the ramparts firing down at this wheat midge army that's trying to storm the castle. Um, on top of the ramparts, you've got spikes so people can't climb up on it. So now you've got multiple multiple ways to defend this castle. This is what we're trying to do with wheat midge. Multiple ways to defend that wheat head from the wheat midge attack. And doing this, we were looking at a couple of mechanical resistance traits. So think about these mechanical resistance traits as the spikes on the top of the uh, ramparts. But before you get there, you've got a hail of arrows coming at you being fired. Now, the hail of arrows then is something that we're going to call overposition deterrence. What does that mean? So it means you don't want to lay eggs on this thing. And what we're finding, and this is a project that Alejandro Costamagna has been heading up, and his postdoc Chiminda uh, Wiradana is doing a great job on figuring out the mechanisms of this overposition deterrence. So we just call it OD. But what that does is it creates almost not a barrier, but it creates a, a different smell on the wheat that the wheat may just kind of like, yeah. The females are like, yeah, I don't, I don't really like the smell of this wheat. I'm going to go elsewhere. And so we've tied that down to a couple of volatile organic compounds that wheat that are expressing this overposition deterrent trait uh, have been releasing or not releasing. So there is a, an attractive ratio of smells that the wheat midge uses to say, this is a good wheat that I'm going to go lay eggs on. And if that ratio is off, she just goes elsewhere. She's like, I don't, I don't really like this wheat here. And so we're looking, um, that has been looked at in the past, and they determined that it was due to the smell of the wheat. And if you took a overposition deterrent wheat, this was uh, Bob Lamb's grad student. So he was AAFC Winnipeg back in the day. Bob Lamb's grad student looked at this, and if you took the smell of the overposition deterrent wheat, and you piped it into a chamber with wheat that was susceptible, that wheat midge liked to lay eggs on, you could actually reduce the amount of egg laying. So overposition deterrence then is one of the pillars that we want to bring into defend wheat. So now you've got SM1 as your last resort because SM1 only functions after the females made her choice, after the larva has crawled down onto the seed, and after that larva has started to feed on the seed. So it's that last resort. It is the people inside the castle with swords hacking up the wheat midge. 
because they've got through the ramparts, they've got past the arrows, they've got past all the other defenses. So we're trying to build Wheat up as a well-defended castle. So overposition deterrence would be that first step. Keep the females from landing on them because they don't like the smell of it. Next one would be the mechanical resistance. And we were looking at things like ons. You're like, oh, Tyler, everything's got ons. Yes, but ons not only increase yield by increasing that photosynthetic capability, but they keep insects from landing on the heads of wheat. So this has been shown before in an aphid system where the aphids didn't like settling on uh, on wheat. And I accidentally created a situation in my field where I had on wheat coming up in wheat that was not on. And I said, let's do a quick little experiment because we had a lot of aphid pressure. And so the wheat that had ons had far less aphid pressure than the wheat that didn't have ons. And why was there on wheat coming up? They were basically coming up as volunteers in the field because I had on wheat one year. Next wheat I plant next year I planted wheat that didn't have ons. Tyler, why are you planting wheat on wheat on wheat? Because I'm trying to build up my wheat midge population. But sometimes then it gives you the the ability to do extra. And so the extra would be looking at the aphid settling on ons. And so that was a paper that somebody else published, but I proved it in my own field. So now you've got ons, the female's like, woof, I got a lot of things to get through before I land on this head. Maybe I'm not going to land on this head. And then we added something, and this came out of Robert Graff's program. He sent me a, a picture of a, a winter wheat that was just, the glooms were covered in hairs. And so you almost had a halo of hairs on this hairy wheat. And uh, he said, hey, do you think that would stop wheat midge? And so in other insect systems, if you cover the plant, say it's the leaves or the stem, in these long, sharp trichomes, that prevents a barrier for the insects to either get there and lay eggs, or it prevents a barrier to the female who needs to make a decision on the surface, should I lay an egg here or should I not? So I thought, hey, let's let's try this out. And so Robert Graff was able to create really hairy wheat uh, by crossing it with some spring wheat lines. And when we started doing the dissections, we realized there is actually two levels of hairiness. So some were very hairy. We called those class two. And then some were, they were hairy, but they weren't nearly as hairy as the class twos. And so we classed those as one. And when we actually looked at the glooms themselves, both of them had lots of hairs on the gloom surfaces, but the twos actually had hairs on the outside of the glooms, which I thought were perfect because wheat midge female, she comes in and she lays eggs underneath the glooms. That's her preference. And because it gets the eggs closer to the kernels where her offspring can feed. And so in the field, we were looking at this and the ons and the hairy glooms just did not seem to reduce the midge damaged kernels, which was our the thing that we were looking for in terms of comparing these. So it wasn't really reducing the midge damaged kernels. But Alejandro's grad student, Bridget White at the University of Manitoba, they got their wheat midge colony working really well. Chaminda did a great job getting the wheat midge colony up and running. And so they could do really fine scale bioassays. And they looked at these hairy wheat and the placement of eggs onto the hairy wheat. And so instead of the female laying the eggs under the glooms on this really hairy wheat, because now there's hairs 
on the sides of the gloom, they were laying the eggs right on top of the glooms. And so it increased the proportion of eggs that were laid on top of the glooms. But unfortunately, it didn't really get in the way of the tiny little wheat midge larvae curling down and under the glooms to get at those kernels. And so that was where the phenotype of no difference in midge damage kernels came from. So yeah, it was changing the behavior of the females and where they would put the eggs, but it unfortunately wasn't doing a whole heck of a lot to protect the kernels from the larvae themselves. So that was actually pretty sad. When, when I realized that, I thought, I thought for sure that putting spikes all over wheat was going to be doing more than it actually did. So then in terms of the genetic component of SM1, remember I called that, these are the soldiers inside the walls now with swords hacking up the larvae. Well, we wanted more of those soldiers. So looking at more genes. And so out of the work that the Winnipeg lab had done, the AFC Winnipeg lab had done, was they had identified another plant, another winter wheat line that seemed to be just excellent against the wheat midge. And at that point, their data suggested that the wheat midge eggs didn't hatch. And I was so excited because if the eggs don't hatch, it means that the larvae don't tap into the seeds and don't do any damage. And so we looked at this and I, I called it egg antibiosis because that seemed to be what was happening. Now, when we looked at it carefully in the field, we had crosses done. So bringing that egg antibiosis into something that was more of a spring wheat, we found that the eggs did hatch. Okay, well, maybe there was something going on there that it was just the winter wheat that was keeping the eggs from hatching. So Bridget looked at the winter wheat itself and the eggs were hatching on the winter wheat. So I said, ah, oh, I've misnamed this, this trait. But on those spring wheat lines, had both SM1 and this EA trait, it was taking the level of midge damaged kernels down to a level that was akin to what Shaw does. So almost 100% in some of these lines where there was no damage. And I say 100%, meaning the seeds were 100% not damaged by wheat midge. And so Vincent Hervé, who's running that AAFC uh, wheat midge colony, said, well, let's change the name of egg antibiosis to enhanced antibiosis so that we don't have to change anything from EA. So still using EA. And so when EA is mixed with SM1, it increases that, uh, that resistance to wheat midge. Now, we also found that that, so it's a quantitative trait loci, and so that quantitative trait loci was working on its own to reduce the amount of midge damage kernels. So maybe it's SM2, but it is definitely not as good as SM1. Because when we looked at the genetic effects of these two traits, SM1 basically just dwarfed the other one. So SM1, really good. And then EA was, you know, it did a little bit but not that much. But when you put it together, then it took that midge damage kernels up to that, that awesome level. And if we go back to what we were talking about before, more resistant than a lot of the wheat lines that we have on the farms these days. So essentially, and <clears throat> maybe just to make sure um, for those listening and for me, quantitative is that one gene causing the effect 
a qualitative is more additive. A lot of genes have to come together to get the desired effect. Um, and you're putting together two quantitative genes, one with more impact than another, to create more than each one on their own. That's right. Now, that overposition deterrence traits, we'd also like to get that mixed in with the EA trait plus the SM1, but it's it's more complicated genetically. So you can't track it down to one locus on a chromosome. So there are a few different loci that seem to relate to overposition deterrence, which causes a real headache for the breeders who want to use marker-selected breeding to figure out if their plants have this or not. And so there are a couple of different potential loci for overposition deterrence. And probably the best thing would be to get all of those loci into a single plant and then see what happens. So one of the projects that we had funded during the wheat cluster here, the new wheat cluster, is to look at one of those loci in a different wheat than has been identified before. And so it's on a different chromosome than the other overposition deterrence traits. So we're looking at that one and maybe what the actual function is. So, um, yeah, a lot of what we like to do as scientists is figure out how things work, not just that things do work, but how they work. And so with that EA trait, we still need to figure out how it works. These other overposition deterrent traits, when they come together, we're learning more about how they work, but it would be good to know how each of them works and if they all work together in the same way. So pulling all of this together, Tyler, we're, <clears throat> we're talking about traits we're still trying to understand the impact of traits into the genetics that are already part of a very complex breeding program. And I, I want to kind of bring this back to what can the producer expect from this discussion? What does this mean for them in the future, right? Um, if one of these tactics, whether it be, you know, that smell or a physical barrier, but it sounds like the physical barrier is a little bit of a challenge or that, that EI, the enhanced um, antibiosis, uh, once we get an idea of what that fig what that looks like and how to implement that, it still has to be bred into the genetics. Assume that there's no gene drag that if we do integrate those genes into this into a variety, it's not impacting other characteristics of that variety. Um, I guess I'm trying to understand, okay, we're at this point now. What are the next steps? What does the future look like? Are we talking about potentially ten years down the road before? Uh, assuming one of these directions that you're going in uh, is successful, is is that the kind of timeline uh, that we're looking at? And um, yeah. I'm going to say that the timeline is probably a bit shorter than that. Why? Because a lot of our wheat breeders have been looking at wheat midge for years now, and they are using that midge damaged kernel reduction already in their breeding. And so some of our current varieties, we believe, are probably already presenting with overposition deterrence in addition to SM1. But it wasn't specifically bred for that. It was just, well, this line has less midge damaged kernels than the other line. So let's push that one forward. So um, talking with our breeders, Santosh and Richard, uh, they would say, yeah, Tyler, well, I think this has probably already got overposition deterrence. So our next step with those ones is to say, does it have it? And can we look at the volatile profile of the, the smell of the wheat, basically? And so 
that's where a postdoc would come in who's kind of worked out that technique and is working with the chemists to identify, okay, did these new varieties have OD based on the smell of the wheat? So still a lot of uh, those how they work questions to be answered. But the newer varieties that are coming in and that are being registered, for example, we've got Landmark. Oh, Wheatland, I believe, is one. These are probably already um, carrying some form of overposition deterrence, and they're just taking less wheat midge overposition than the other ones are. And they've got SM1, so maybe they've got those two forms of resistance already. And most things are uh, presenting with ons as well. And so we can get what we did show with the ons was a little bit of reduction in midge damage kernels if the plant had ons versus if the plant didn't have ons. So um, functioning a little bit there. Another uh, reason why it'll be valuable to get that kind of tolerance grading understanding of which varieties bring what level of, of tolerance are you seeing some of those and what does it um, add up to? I, I want to ask one more question, maybe to kind of tie this together to a, um, a cropping systems question, because a lot of this is, is coming down to variety development. Um, can we put these genes into a variety that's going to help mitigate the impacts of wheat midge? Um, we do have some understanding about how we can properly rotate our crops um, and manage our cropping systems to mitigate wheat midge being more impactful, like not doing wheat on wheat on wheat. Um, but is there anyone doing work on that side um, of how maybe the cropping system may impact the population of wheat midge? Or, or do we already have kind of a full understanding? Because, um, you know, it's great. We can utilize these tools and the development of new varieties, which producers, uh, you know, get a lot of value out of these new varieties, but tying that to um, good cropping management uh is there anyone looking at that side of it as well uh, in conjunction with this at this point right now i don't think anyone's looking at the agronomics of crop rotation versus wheat midge but i think that was looked at in the past so you know if you do have a wheat midge problem in your field and you know it because someone's come in and looked at your larvae take it out of wheat for a while but remember these are insects and they have wings so they're mobile so um, if there's any wheat in the area, then they'll go to that wheat. How mobile are they? Um, that is a good question. I don't think we have a good grasp of how far a wheat midge can fly in the daytime or whether or not they will even fly very far. So a lot of the males that we catch, though, are on the edges of the field, which suggests that they might be coming into the wheat fields. And uh, yeah. So these are big questions that we need big plots and a lot of farms to answer if we want to do any more answers like that on the future. But, you know, if you're a wheat midge and you've come up in a canola field, are you going to be able to get out of that canola field to get to the next wheat field? Or are you just going to give up and not uh, contribute to the next generation, which is really possible. So that's where crop rotation definitely comes into play. Well, I, I greatly appreciate the time and the conversation. This has been uh, enlightening to listen to. So um, thank you for the time. Is there anything else you feel like we maybe haven't covered or anything you want to uh, say before we finish up here? So what I've been saying 
And this was after the forecast came out for, oh, was it 2022? The forecast for wheat midge looked rosy. It was green, which means we weren't seeing them in the ground. Why? 2022, hot, dry. And in my field, at least, my crop headed out really small and probably was not matching up with the wheat midge emergence very well. Or the wheat midge didn't come out of the ground because it was just too dry in the spring. Now, if the wheat midge don't come out and they don't go onto the heads and then they don't fall to the ground to overwinter, they're not getting picked up on those surveys. And so the survey after 2021 going into 2022 looked like we weren't going to have much of a wheat midge problem. When we put the pheromone traps out again, and this was where I was saying, oh, do we even need to put pheromone traps up? We might not catch a single wheat midge. We put up pheromone traps and we caught more wheat midge in 2022 than we did in 2021, even though the forecast was not forecasting a lot of wheat midge. And so my unanswered question there was, were these those ticking time bombs that were just sitting in the field, maybe lower down than the other ones? And that's why they didn't get picked up on the survey? I don't know. But what I do know is that we had more wheat midge on traps in 2022 than we did in 2021. And the 2021 forecast said we're going to have a lot of wheat midge. And the 2022 forecast said we're not going to have a lot of wheat midge, but we did. So my new take-home message is don't turn your back on wheat midge. The conditions in 2022 in the spring were right for wheat midge emergence, and they emerged, even though they hadn't been picked up on the forecasting maps. Yeah. I. Uh, so is that a wheat midge behind you, Jeremy? Don't turn your back on a wheat midge. <laughs> making me scared over here. No, I, I think, I mean, that's, I mean, again, it ties back maybe to that rainfall aspect of. It does. It totally talks about the environmental influence on these insect populations. And another great reason to follow prairiepest.ca and get subscribed and get that information timely because. Um, and hashtag Midge Busters on former Twitter. Absolutely. On X slash Twitter. Uh, well, thank you again for the time. I appreciate the conversation and hopefully we'll chat soon, Tyler. All right. Well, thanks, Jeremy. And if anybody wants to get involved in that hashtag Midge Busters, uh, reach out to us in the really early spring and we've got some pheromone traps. That we can Beautiful. Well, we'll put your contact information in the show notes so that way anyone listening can click away and, and shoot you an email. Sounds good. So can I talk about one more thing? Sure. All right. Now, part of our Midge Busters is, hey, can you send me some pictures of wheat midge on traps? And so for our listeners out there, why were we sending in pictures to Tyler? Well, I'm pushing those pictures of wheat midge on traps into another project that we're doing um, with the PI down at the University of Regina. We had a, a computer scientist reach out and he wanted to work on some flea beetles and using smart traps to count flea beetles on traps. And I said, what a cool idea. Let's also do that with wheat midge. And so we've been feeding these wheat midge pictures to him and uh, he and his grad student have been working on teaching a computer to count wheat midge so that the agronomists don't have to because sometimes in hashtag midge busters we got the Tyler that just took me a long time to count and uh, now we've got a computer that's able to do it so the computer is very good at saying that's a wheat midge 
boom, count it. So taking the pain out of counting wheat midge is uh, one of the things that we're trying to work on in that project. So I just thought I'd put that in there that, uh, you know, one project leads into another and we're making progress on these smart traps for use in, in farmer's fields. So you don't have to count the many. We can see collaboration between multiple projects and adding value. I mean, that's, you know, kind of breaking down the silo. Yeah, we'll we'll put up your information there so people can get involved next year uh, with the wheat midge um, uh, surveillance. And maybe they'll get their image sent in and detected by AI to make sure they're counting all of that appropriately. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thanks again, Tyler. And All right. Well, thanks for chatting with me. I appreciate it. Of course. Have a good one, sir. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the Growing Point Podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a second to rate, review, and share this podcast with all of your friends. This helps us grow and get our message out. You can also sign up for the Growing Point newsletter by going to albertawheat or albertabarley.com and sign up for our mailing list. This will help you stay up to date on all the agronomic information we share through articles, interviews, and the newsletter. See you next time.